the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, sir, and good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this May 5th edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company. As we do Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Pretty jam-packed program for you today, a little bit later on, as uh, we slowly begin to see the opening of states, communities. The question is, how do we do it, and do it comfortably, and do it safely? And what about the impact of public gatherings? Certainly of interest to those that uh, attend church services on the weekends. Well, Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, will join us with an update on the latest regulations regarding the whole way in which we can open up and do so safely in day and age of COVID-19. We'll also talk about the tremendous impact that this virus has had decimating so many retirement and rest homes across the country. And the numbers are staggering. And sadly, a lot of the authorities, a lot of the officials are seemingly trying to, instead of engage in a little sunlight so we can understand what's what's going on, instead they seemingly are trying to sort of hide it. What that agenda is all about, well, we can draw our own conclusions, but we're going to ask Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee to join us coming up later on in this hour to offer us some insight. And if you've been frustrated by all this stay-at-home business, maybe you have been furloughed, you've lost a job, you're trying to ascertain once things open up again with such a tremendous impact on the economy and the job market, how will you bounce back? We've got an amazing author that's going to join us. A woman who spent a decade at home, not of her own desire, but she was forced to be home and bed-bound due to a traumatic brain injury, which she eventually recovered from. She stepped back into a world that she had been absent from for almost a decade. How do you bounce back from an experience like that? Well, if she can do it, I think she'll suggest all of us can do it. We'll talk with her author of From the Core, A Spiritual Journey of Losing Everything and Finding Hope, coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. We lead off, as I mentioned, the opening slowly starting to take place, even as we're still continuing to see a number of deaths. In fact, uh, the most recent numbers here, uh, we see 1,700 um, confirmed cases in Alameda County alone. And... um, the impact, of course, just just continues. And some of the predictions are, as it's reached the 70,000s, that it could be up over 100,000 before it's all 
said and done. Hardly a victory, to be sure. Let's get some insights as to a mitigation of this virus. And uh, what about some of the talk of a potential vaccine and some of the medications out there that have shown some promise? Dr. Jane Orient is executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She is also president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. She's been in private practice since 1981. And Dr. Orient, a privilege to have you join us again. My pleasure. Let's talk first about a bit of where we are today. I know that there's a growing sense amongst Americans, and we've seen it in the protest everywhere from Michigan to Washington, D.C. to Sacramento, that Americans are getting antsy. They want to get back to a normal life. I have to wonder, though, just how practical is all of this, and how difficult is it in terms of trying to weigh the financial or economic consequences alongside the health consequences? I think we need to remember that the financial and economic consequences are health consequences. When people lose their livelihoods, when they can't pay their bills, maybe they'll lose their homes, um, when they're in poverty, then this has a very bad effect on their health. It also has an effect on um, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, suicides. So we're, we're not balancing money against death. We're balancing death against death. I mean, if we lose our capacity to produce food, to produce energy, um, then everybody is going to be living in abject misery. So it's absolutely necessary for people to go back to work. We also also have to remember that we're all going to die and that there are going to always be outbreaks of diseases. This one has been particularly bad. It's not as bad as it was at first predicted. This whole national lockdown came about as a result of computer predictions that were that were wildly wrong and we're not going to see two million deaths from from this virus and a lot of people have forgotten that most of the people who do get infected are not even going to know it and if they do know it chances are they will have a very mild illness but everyone is nevertheless terrified and we, we, there are people, I think Dr. Fauci as well, or Bill Gates said, we got to keep the country locked down, which means it, it will die until we have a vaccine. Well, are we going to have a vaccine? Maybe. Will it be safe and effective? Maybe. There are, there are conditions like AIDS and malaria that we've been trying to find a vaccine for for decades, and we haven't. There have been vaccines like for the swine flu that have turned out to be more dangerous than the disease. But what is most outrageous is that we have ways to shore up your immune system and ways of treating or preventing the disease that the government is not allowing us to use. And I think well, let, is- let's, talk, let, let's talk a bit about that. Uh, but before we do, I want to have you maybe, to the best of your ability, uh, answer a question. Because it, it's interesting. I had a conversation with somebody just today Um, who recently discovered that while he never experienced any symptoms, he's tested positive for COVID-19. And the the irony here seems to be that this is um, certainly no respecter of persons, meaning we find um, evidence of the disease or the, the virus attacking both the elderly as, yo- as well as the very young and everybody in between. But what I find interesting is how some people can be totally asymptomatic 
and others to the point of to point of death. Why why is it that this virus in particular s- seems to seems to act in such a broad based fashion? That's a very good question, and I'm not sure we have an answer to it. There's a lot of genetic variability in people. Some people are more susceptible than others. But there may be things that you can do to put yourself in a less susceptible group, like making sure you're getting enough sunshine and taking enough vitamin D. There was a study in Indonesia that showed that virtually all of the people who died were deficient in vitamin D. And the people who, who had adequate vitamin D, almost all of them survived and did well. And we're just not paying nearly enough attention to ways to increase our own resistance to disease. And vitamin D is necessary for, for protection against all kinds of respiratory viruses, not just this one. I have to wonder, just thinking aloud here, Dr. Orient, uh, given the overall state of health in America today, and I'm alluding to things like coronary heart disease, diabetes, cancer, obesity, does any of this potentially help us understand the reason why we see the United States with, my goodness, four times, five times the number of cases of COVID-19 of any other nation on earth? I think it has something to do with that. Also, we are in um, the temperate zone. The countries that are in more tropical regions are, are having less impact from this. Uh, so that all of these, all of these predisposing factors, and we just have so much diabetes, and obesity that that does seem to predispose a person to getting uh, sick and even dying of this this illness and even if it doesn't necessarily increase the risk in terms of of uh being exposed to it it certainly makes the ability to recover from it uh much more challenging if your body is already dealing with uh, an imbalance when it comes to things like you know diabetes and and things of that sort Yes, certainly the person's resistance and his overall health has something to do with how well he's going to do if he gets infected. Dr. Jane Orient is with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. We mentioned just a moment ago um, where we stand in terms of not just research in relationship to a possible vaccine down the road, and I emphasize down the road, but in the short term, what about certain drugs and medications that exist today, albeit perhaps indicated for other types of viruses or other types of illnesses that may have a positive impact on COVID-19? We'll talk about hydroxychloroquine. We'll also talk about rendisivir and others as our conversation with Dr. Jane Orient continues here on the Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. Get you an update on traffic right now, and we turn things over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Dr. Jane Orient with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, also President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Dr. Orient, let's talk a bit about um, treatment here. Certainly in the discovery of any kind of new virus or disease, it takes time, it takes controlled studies, it takes an investment of money and research, and sometimes answers are years down the road. 
there is a lingering sense we have that we don't have that kind of time here. And so the rush to try to see if there's an existing drug uh, that may have a, a positive counterindication in this case, um, side effects, so to speak, that may in fact ease or if not um, benefit um, COVID-19 patients is certainly something that has been being looked at and talked about. The one that perhaps has received the, the most press, so to speak, um, is uh, hydroxychloroquine, which typically, as we know, is used to treat malaria. This has been touted as having miracle effects, certainly by the president. Others say not so fast. Unless it's used in a very controlled atmosphere, it could have devastating potential side effects to people with pre-existing heart conditions. Has this drug really been given the, 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 the full public uh, trial that it really perhaps deserves under the circumstances? Hydroxychloroquine has been around for 50 to 70 years. It's, well, it's safer than chloroquine, which has been around even longer for treating malaria. It's used in a lot of patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis with great success. People take this for years. The, the interest in looking for new drugs didn't just start with COVID-19. We have, are continually at risk of having emerging infections coming from animals like bats and back in in the um, with Ebola, remember that back in about 2004, wasn't it? But we have had investigations into old drugs that could be repurposed to fight against these viruses since at least 2003, and hydroxychloroquine was found to be one of the most promising ones back then. So this this is nothing new. It it works in ways that are can really make it useful against a number of viruses. It keeps the virus from getting into the cell, which is what you really like best. It keeps it from replicating, reproducing once it's in the cell. And a really, really interesting feature is it calms down the immune response, which is why it works for lupus. But it's the over-exuberant immune response, the cytokine storm, as it's called, that is probably responsible for most of the death. People are not dying from the virus itself but from their body's own reaction, and the hydroxychloroquine can help to calm that down. So It sounds like, though, you're suggesting that largely most of the benefits that have been seen so far have more been on the uh, prophylactic end of, of the spectrum as opposed to a treatment once the full-on impact of COVID-19 has sort of taken over a person's system. Is that is that accurate? Uh, yes, I think so, but I, and there have been some cases of seemingly miraculous results when people were on verge of death and they took this and they got better, um, likely because of the drug, maybe there was something else. But, but the best use is prophylactically or very early in the illness to keep people from getting to the hospital, to the ICU, to the ventilator. And countries that are using this early in, in the disease, like Brazil and India, is using it prophylactically. Countries that started to use it this way, Israel, Algeria, Morocco have had very excellent results. Their, their trend toward infections and deaths has turned around, and it's, it's just really a shame, an outrage, that Americans are being denied the opportunity to take advantage of this. 
it, does some of this have to work sort of hand in glove, doctor, with uh, with testing? And you know, I, that's been an ongoing uh, controversy. Certainly, we've been repeatedly told if you need a test, they're available. And yet, we also hear repeatedly folks go in and they're told, no, you don't have the right uh, qualifications. You're not showing the ne- necessary number of symptoms in order to justify giving you a test. If there was greater access, more widespread access to testing, would this be beneficial in terms of the the, the efficacy of using um, hydroxychloroquine? Oh, I think those are two unrelated things. You're quite right. The testing has been very restricted, and it would have been very important early on to have testing so we could do a better job of, of trying to contain the illness. Unfortunately, the tests are not completely accurate. If we treat a lot of healthy people, we're going to get maybe as many false positives as true positives. The test can be negative repeatedly, and yet the patient can still get very sick and die. Um, We're beginning to get out some antibody tests that will tell if people have had the disease and recovered from it and are now immune, and those people are now being asked to donate plasma to give to people who are very sick to see if we can't, uh, can't save them. One of the other drugs that's shown some promise is uh, rendesivir. Can you comment on um, the the trials that have been conducted so far and the degree of which of the two between rendesivir and hydroxychloroquine seem to show more promise? Rendesivir is relatively new. It was developed about 30 years ago uh, for Ebola, and it failed in the case of Ebola and has been sitting on the shelf since then. There's a great effort to revive it, and certainly a lot of what I consider to be sales pitches for remdesivir. There have been a couple of trials, a very disappointing one in China. The one in the United States that's being highly touted now showed that people who recovered got out of the hospital four days faster on remdesivir, uh, did not have a significant effect on the death rate. The problem with it is is that it can only be given to patients in the hospital. It has to be given IV. In contrast to hydroxychloroquine, it's very expensive, and we don't have much of it. They're really ramping up the efforts to to manufacture it. But it's sort of unprecedented for a drug to be rushed through so quickly based on such limited evidence that has not even been published yet. There are a lot of side effects to it. Hydroxychloroquine is one of the safest drugs that we have, although there are some contraindications, there are some side effects, so not everybody should take it and needs to be monitored. But with remdesivir, we don't even really have good safety studies yet. Let me complicate all of this. In terms of the research that's been done so far and some questionable outcomes, at least in, in both the two drugs, we have discussed the the degree of complication may be uh, reports now that scientists have identified a new strain of the coronavirus whether or not exactly this is the one that's going around at the very moment or something that appeared early on late fall of last year and and perhaps has had the the ability to uh, to morph into what we're seeing now with the current strain should this trouble us at all in terms of the notion that that uh, not unlike the flu there are multiple strains out there floating around and and how is this going to hamper the efforts of researchers to be able to get a handle on a possible way of beating this thing. This should not surprise us. This is an RNA virus, and the RNA viruses make a lot of mistakes when they reproduce, and this results in new strains. 
some of which may die out, some of which may be more lethal, some less lethal. It really seriously complicates the efforts to develop vaccines, like the flu vaccine. You have a new one every year. Um, the drugs, remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine, probably are going to work uh, regardless because of their mechanism of action. So I would say that this, these new strains, and there's more than, there's more than two of them already, um, is more of a problem for vaccination than for treatment. Finally, Dr. Orion, as we converse here this evening, we see the United States with over 1.2 million cases, almost 71,000 deaths, and we're barely four months into uh, the significant presence of this virus in the United States. I realize that no one, including Dr. Fauci, um, has a crystal ball, but just based on your uh, your clinical experience and your knowledge, where do you see this thing headed right now, realistically? Oh well, I think that that it's going to to taper down. Of the epidemiologists looked at this in a number of countries, say it seems to follow the same course no matter what you do, whether you lock the place down or use more temperate measures for controlling it. As as people begin to develop some immunity, and as we get into more sunshine so people are less vitamin D deficient or for what, for a number of reasons. This just tends to be the pattern with viral epidemics. Will it have a recrudescence? Probably. A, a lot of epidemics do. But we talked about the 71,000 deaths, which really sounds horrible. It's more than maybe the flu deaths of about 60,000 a year. But we, we really don't have a good handle on how many deaths there are because in some places... If you die, it's attributed to COVID-19, whether it was or not. Maybe you had a heart attack, but uh, you might still have COVID-19 written on your death certificate. Then there are even incentives for hospitals to code everything as COVID-19 because they get more money for it. So when you have unreliable statistics, we're really kind of in the dark. At the end of the day, the current modifications we've seen in terms of social distancing, better hand washing, behaviors of this sort, certainly are going to help no matter what, whether we're talking about reducing the spread of COVID-19 or simply reducing the spread of the common cold. Do you think at the end of the day, if we, if we stick up with these practices, if, we, if, we're, if, we're, if we're good at keeping these new habits, that it, in the end will be beneficial? I think so. I mean, there's anecdotal evidence, as they call it, that that schools that have done a lot more um, disinfecting and hand washing and so on see less absenteeism from influenza, colds, or from whatever. That uh, one lawyer's office said, well, since we've been using hand sanitizer all the time, we no longer have everybody get sick as soon as one person does. So I think this will, will be of lasting benefit. So it turns out mother was right after all. Wash your hands. <laughs> she was right about most things, wasn't she? Maybe everything. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Dr. Orient, we sure appreciate the time, the ability to, to get some insights and, and do it in a fashion that's not wrought with all the hype, the politics, and, uh, and the confusion. It's always a privilege to have you with us. Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Information available, go to ddponline.org. That's ddponline.org. 
531 from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic right now as we head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, after weeks and weeks of quarantine, I think there's, we certainly all would, I think, confess a growing frustration to want to get back to life again. And yet, I think we're beginning to understand that the life that we return to may be very different than the one that we left back in March. There's been loss of life, loss of jobs. The stores and restaurants that we once patronized may never open again. A lot of life will have changed, perhaps for you personally. Not just maybe a sense of having lost employment or been furloughed or seen a reduction in wages, whatever it might be, um, but, but a sense of trying to kind of gather your thoughts and re-engage in what becomes the new normal. The irony is we've always talked about the importance of disconnecting, and yet as we've been disconnected now for so long, many people are feeling um, very unstable on their feet. Certainly my next guest knows what that's like. She spent a decade stuck at home, bedbound, in the wake of a traumatic brain injury. And when she recovered, the world that she returned to was very different from the one that she had left a decade before. Cordela Yoakum joins us now. A new book called From the Core, Spiritual Journey of Losing Everything and Finding Hope. And Cor, great to have you with us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. What a beautiful lead-in. Thank you for that. <sighs> Thinking our way through your experience, which I think may may give a lot of people a tremendous sense of hope because we've looked at this period of time and and to be sure there's been a lot of frustration and and a lot of people that are going through difficult challenges um, but it's all a matter of perspective and perspective that you'll help bring to us is the experience that you had that led to a traumatic brain injury which as i mentioned forced you to be literally stuck at home and bed bound for a decade first tell us what happened when I was seven years old, I fell out of a two-story window with my brother, and oh. um, my, my dad was renovating our attic. We lived in a Tudor house in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and for anyone who knows a Tudor house, they have very steep sort of steeples and attics, and consequently very steep stairs. And so I was, you know, there was a planter box, and to this day, we don't exactly know what happens, happened, but my mom called for us down in the kitchen, a floor below, and we arrived downstairs just not in the way that anyone intended. So we both, my baby brother and I, flew over this window box down onto the attic stairs below, and I landed on my back hitting my head against the stairs, and my brother, thank God, landed on my stomach, and with the bounce kind of went into the kitchen looking for food. <laughs> you know, he was <laughs> under one years old, so he had other things on his mind, and the fall knocked the wind out of me. It knocked the wind out of my mom, who heard the thud in the kitchen, came screaming around the corner, and encountered me on the stairs. Um, and that was what started it. But I think what's so important to know about traumatic brain injury, if I can speak just a moment about traumatic brain injury, is it's one of the leading causes of death in children and it's incredibly common. And traumatic brain injury, there are really two types. There's closed head injury and open head injury, and you can kind of ascertain the difference. 
and I had a closed head injury, which many of our soldiers sustain, um, many football players sustain, where your brain ricochets within the skull cavity and swells and has nowhere to go. So that fall really destabilized me. I loved in your lead up, you said it really sort of people are feeling wobbly on their feet. And that's how I kind of walked through life from seven forward. I had all of these neurological symptoms. My parents took me into all sorts of doctors. But as we do often in the medical community, we sort of shunt people to the specialty of the symptom that's expressing itself. So if I had nausea, I was sent to the gastroenterologist. If I had a headache, I was sent to the, you know, the neurologist. But what was really um, the problem was the in the brain, you have the spine that runs through, the spinal cord which runs through the spine, and then it innervates the entire body. And that's called the autonomic nervous system, and that system is broken in me. So all of the body's autopilot does not work in me, and you can just imagine the mayhem that that created. But what we know now with soldiers and with football players is there's often something called the second assault, and that's the second time you sustain traumatic brain injury. And unfortunately, that's what happened with me, so I limped along from seven years old. I was functional to the outside world. I had a large, um, you know, a bigger-than-life personality that I displayed to the outside world, while in the inside world I was really just trying to stay, sustain life and often just stay upright. And, um, but I kind of limped through life that way until in my 30s I was living in Los Angeles and I had a car accident that spun me around in circles. I severed a planter box, a light post, and a fire hydrant from their base sustained my second traumatic brain injury and within months I was bed bound and could no longer care for myself and needed to move from, you know, new, at that time I was living in New York a couple months after I had the, the accident in LA, I moved to New York and within months I could no longer care for myself, had to move in with my parents in Liberty Lake, Washington, which is a very small town in Washington. And wow. I stayed home and bed bound for a decade. So when people are experiencing what they're experiencing right now, and really the most precious thing that we're missing out on from my perspective is what I call the feedback loop of society. When we step out, you know, our life sort of issues a ripple. Whether we speak or not, we walk into a room and we encounter strangers or friends, and our life registers inside of those people and is reflected back to us. And it's the most beautiful, beautiful gift a human can offer another human is reflection of who they are and I didn't have that for a decade and when we feel lonely and when we feel disconnected and when we feel hungry for each other like we're feeling right now that's what we're missing is that resonance of our life and the reception of other people's resonance because that's equally as beautiful and of course I think part of the, the frustrating thing here is that you know we're, we're thrown into circumstances ill-prepared this may have put a strain on existing strained relationships and then uh, there's twofold, I think, the, the feedback loop, as you suggest, along with the, the sort of pressure relief valve that suddenly has been removed from us. Um, if you're in a relationship and there's some stress and strain there, well, you have the hope of going to work tomorrow or sending the kids off to school. And, and absent all of that, kind of being stuck together, no pressure relief valve, and that disconnect from some of the, and I think part of that daily feedback loop is also our sense of purpose, that somebody who's used to going to work and doing a job and getting compliments and bringing home the bacon and so forth, now you're suddenly deprived of all of that, can really impact a sense of how one sees oneself, can't it? Yeah. 
For sure. Well, what you're talking about, I think, is identity. You know, so, so much of us, so much, we, we hang our identity. We sort of absorb labels as identity, which I think is the danger, right? So if I'm a girlfriend, or for me, let's just take me for example. I was living in New York. I had a, hand, a luxury leather handbag line, so I was a fashion designer. You know, I lived in a loft in Manhattan. I was dating. I had friends. So I had all of these labels that I applied to my life, right? Designer, you know, friend, socialite, whatever it was. And when all of that got stripped away, I didn't know who I was. And that, to me, is the big um, gift of this season and also the big uh, danger of this season is that we're left with ourselves encountering our own identity and, in a way, I call it identity intelligence. Um, you know, and shoring up that understanding of who we actually are, present those labels and, more significantly, absent those labels will define how we come out of this period of time and how we survive and thrive in it, I think. Some people feel as if this notion of the the isolation that we've been in uh, can be nothing but self-destructive. But you suggest in the book, uh, dependent upon one's attitude, this really can be a time when you can thrive. I guess it all depends on how you use the time. Yeah. Well, and I want to be really honest with your listeners. You know, when I was home and bedbound, I will say I was not thriving. And a lot of that had to do with the setup of the time, right? So when I fell out of a two-story window, and I only got this perspective in looking at my experience in the rearview mirror, and the irony that I'm now back in it, I now know how to use my identity, my identity intelligence to thrive within it, but it was only in coming out of that period of time where I was home and bed-bound that I actually had space around my survival mechanism. So when I fell out of that 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 two-story window when I was seven, it created this schism in me. And traumatic brain injury isn't the only way into this schism. It just happened to be mine. But, you know, when it's kind of when your life gets knocked off course. So for me, it was a traumatic brain injury. For other people, it would be when mom and dad come home and they say, we have something to tell you. We're no longer going to be living together. Or we're moving. Or a child goes into school with an open heart only to be bullied and sent home with all of these new feelings of rejection. All of those things can knock a person off their feet and have them questioning their identity and who they actually are. And so this schism is really a mistaken identity. And looking back on it, I began at seven years old. You know, I didn't know at seven, because of course you're not thinking in that way. But after I came out of the season where I was home and bed bound, and with the help of, a, of just wonderful people around me and a coach, what I came to understand is I started, my dad had gotten me, you know, at seven years old, I was starting to learn the value of money and the concept of money. And my dad had gotten me a little piggy bank, and along with it, he'd also gotten me a little coin collection. You know, those little, it was in like a plastic sleeve, and it had kind of red velvet on the inside, and everything was super shiny inside, and had like a quarter and a dime and a nickel and a 50-cent and piece and a full dollar, all in minted coins. And looking back as I went to all these doctors, and after a time, Craig, when they couldn't find anything discernibly wrong with me, they started saying things like, there isn't anything physically wrong with you, right? It's all in your head. And I started seeing on the face of the adults around me, anger, rejection, contempt. And I wanted to do anything to mitigate those feelings of rejection. 
And so I developed this personality of like super shiny, happy, positive cheerleader personality. But inside, what I began telling myself is everyone else, something's wrong with me, right? I'm not lovable because I'm, I've got some type of character deficit that's causing me to behave in a way that hurts my family, that's, you know, seems to be struggling for attention. I thought, you know, what's wrong with me? Why do I need this kind of attention? What kind of person am I? And looking back, I created this thought process that said, everyone else is a full dollar and I'm 50 cents. Because I'm broken, because something's wrong with me, because I have got this character deficit, I'm consequently not lovable. And so I'm a 50 cent person and everyone else is a full dollar person. And when I saw that contempt and rejection, I vowed to myself that I would do anything to, to sort of prove that I was worthy. And that schism is what I call 50 cent thinking. And as I've come out of this season, I've had this wonderful opportunity to begin telling my story from stage. First, it was at a dinner party, then it was on stage, then it was on more stages. Now I find myself in front of, you know, anywhere from students at the University of Washington to seasoned military veterans at the Naval Academy to veterans um, through Red Team Red, White, and Blue. You know, you name it, I've seen this schism alive and well, and 50 Cent Thinking exists among us. And, and if there's anything I want from the court to do as a seed, it's to meet people where they are in their 50 cent thinking and encourage them that there is wholeness and there is hope. So it really, Craig, wasn't until I stepped out of surviving, when I finally got space around um, just surviving, and that we can certainly talk about how I sort of physically recovered enough to, to breathe and step out of my survival mode, but that was really the moment where I started realizing some of these things and that hope became available. It's a fascinating story and, and one that I think we can derive much encouragement from because, as you suggest, there was a period of time in which you struggled to find both your identity and your value. And I think we're going to find people as we emerge out of this crisis will be in that very same place again, that the world that they thought, that they knew, that they felt comfortable in has suddenly been turned upside down. And once again, they're struggling to not only find their identity and their value, but perhaps even at the core address things like, you know, day-to-day -day reality of, of the need to earn money, to put food on the table, pay the mortgage, things of that sort. Um, Give, give us a sense in terms of, you know, having had literally the emotional, economic, physical rug pulled out from underneath all of us. How do you go about sort of climbing your way back out? Baby steps. And an acknowledgement that you are going to be needing and requiring healing on absolutely every area that you just mentioned emotional, physical, mental, financial, spiritual, all of those things will need to be addressed. So as I stepped out, the first thing I did, well, I'll tell you, the first thing I did is I took a stand for myself in my life. So while I was still bedbound and I started, you know, I had received this treatment in the hospital during an ER visit. I ended up in the ER and they miraculously began this treatment that they didn't do purposely. It was kind of a whoopsie-daisy, wow, that's magic. <laughs> that actually brought me back to life. And as I started coming back to life, I started looking at the, the circumstances of my life around me that I realized that my 50-cent belief of believing that I wasn't lovable caused me to execute 50-cent behaviors that then attracted people within my life that treated me in that fashion. 
And so the first thing that happened and the first thing that will happen for a lot of people that is probably already happening now, Craig, is, like you mentioned, a big shedding whether it's shedding of their job, shedding of some of these relationships that you mentioned are, you know, being seen under a microscope because all of a sudden there's no relief valve, things will fall off in this period. And what I have learned is it isn't the falling off that will define you. It is what comes into your life unexpectedly because of it. So I did not expect to write a book. In fact, it was so not, you know, after... I've had enough isolation for a monk's life, thanks. Like, I didn't want to be a writer and sit in this, you know, small little closet and type out this book. Like, that was so not on my roadmap. You know, I, I wanted to, whatever, be a, be a DJ, be a part, like, I wanted to be in the middle of the party. So writing a book was not at all on my roadmap, but it was an assignment given to me. And um, assignments will be issued to the people as they come out of this sort of pandemic lockdown. My encouragement would just be, let the things that need to fall away, fall away. And if anyone is thinking that I'm issuing that statement lightly and that I don't live in the circumstances that they are living in, first of all, that's very true. But second of all, know that the things that fell out of my life were um, the, the chance at motherhood. So I was in a relationship. We were engaged while I was bedbound, and that's a story of its own that I tell in the book. But we were engaged, and we were a couple months before the wedding when I realized that I was in a relationship that was a 50-cent relationship, meaning I wasn't being treated very well. And once I realized that, I took a stand for myself in my life that was a full-dollar stance. And so what fell out of my life was not only this person that I loved deeply that had been a phenomenal caretaker of me. He was the... Craig, he was sometimes the only person I saw for months, for months. My son rose and sat with this person. To say that I love him and loved him is such an extreme understatement. And yet, as I stepped into this healing and this, like you said, new normal, my new normal required that relationship to die. And I cannot emphasize how painful that was. And on top of that, you know, I was a woman in my 40s. And for women, it's very difficult. You know, as we age, pregnancy becomes less and less possible and less and less, you know, successful. And when I walked out of that relationship, I knew that I was also leaving the idea of physical motherhood behind. So it was a double whammy. And I stepped out into a new day where I hadn't made friends really for a decade. The one person I knew and loved and my whole world revolved around, I had to leave. And I stepped out kind of, kind of a little bit like, ta-da, here I am, world, you know, I finally made it back. And I don't know if I had the excitation that, like, you know, the world would throw a party that I was back, that, that they would share the equal excitement that I felt, you know, kind of being back, separate from all the grief that I was going through. I was just so excited to be able to be out in the world again. But, of course, the world wasn't waiting for me to resurface. And so not only did I have to step into a fresh new world, I also had to rebuild something that I hadn't spent, you know, when you look at people's lives, we live often compounding lives, right? So we meet someone, we get married, we start building a family, we get a job, we get a promotion, we move to another company, we network, we meet colleagues, our colleagues refer us to another job. I didn't have that. So it was really stepping out as a woman in my mid-40s into a blank slate, and I, I trust and I believe and I feel in my heart right now that I'm speaking to someone 
that is facing that same blank slate and has fear around that. And I understand that fear, but I also want to tell you that this is survivable. Not only is this survivable, but you're listening to me right now as an author of a book and on a radio station as someone who never thought I would step foot outside again, let alone live to see another day. So I hope that delivers hope to even one person. I think it does, and I think that the, the, the core message is is out of necessity that um, when we are facing challenges seem to be absolutely overwhelming, we're struggling with a sense to try to find our our identity and our value and trying to sort of dig out from all of, of where we find ourselves, that it's important to understand that we can reclaim life, um, that there is hope, and that taking it a step at a time, the old adage, uh, Cord, how do you eat an elephant one, one bite at a time? Taking this a step at a time and seeing little steps of progress. You may feel as if the, the hit was all of a sudden, like your experience falling out that window was all of a sudden. People are listening right now, lost jobs, all of a sudden. And yet building back out may take more time but I guess in the end, the real message here is that if you if you stick with it, if you never lose sight of hope, you can and will survive. And, and never lose sight of who you actually are. You know, it's so easy, again, like thinking of the labels versus your actual core identity. And that's why the book is called From the Core, because this season, when you get things ripped out from underneath you or when, when things are stripped away, you're faced with what who you really are at the core. And this is why I love being on your show, because I was not a woman of faith, Craig. I had no expectation that that God would heal me. You know, like, I kind of thought if there was a God, that his job was to heal me physically, and couldn't he get on that pretty quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, you know, so that was kind of my expectation if I had one, that God was to heal me physically. What I didn't expect was this healing that came emotionally, mentally, And spiritually, that was something, when you talk about something that you don't see coming, I guess this is part of that real hope and encouragement that God will meet you on the path. And that I did not expect Him, I did not see Him coming, I didn't go seeking for God. I went seeking life, I went seeking wholeness, I went seeking healing, I went seeking happiness and joy and all of those things, and I encountered God. And that was really the moment where I was reflected who I really was. And that identity, you know, I love that you said that there's a building back out. I am five years out of my first treatment that I received in the ER, and I'm still rebuilding my life. And to say that it's anything different than that would be misleading, that there are things in my life that are still not shored up, that I still hope for, that I still pray for every night, that aren't complete. And so I have to go back to my core identity every day. And I'm facing the same pandemic, obviously, that everyone else is. And my livelihood is threatened yet again as everyone else is. Um, so the only thing I have to rest on is what God says to me about myself. And as long as I get into alignment with that truth, everything else will be figured out as I walk into each day, like you said, step by step. The book is called From the Core, A Spiritual Journey of Losing Everything and Finding Hope. It will be published by Corehouse Publishers, and you'll find it available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as through uh, Core's website, which is 
and I'll spell it, Cordelia Joachim, and it's C-O-R-D-I-L-A-J-O-C-H-I-M. Cor, thanks so much for the time and sharing your story of encouragement. I know that it's important for all of us. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. Let's get you updated on some traffic right now.